0: So the virus itself has only, you know, it has less than 30 genes, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas our cells and our body have over 20,000 genes or proteins. So the virus cannot exist by itself. It Mm -hmm. cannot live without our cells and without our genes and our proteins. So the question is, which genes and proteins does the virus need in order to infect us?
1: Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow UCSF scientists as well as non-scientist friends to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. The clip you just heard was Professor Nevin Krogan, Director of the Quantitative Biosciences Institute, or QBI, and he's describing one of the key questions in SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus research, namely, how does the virus take over our cells? This is the subject of today's episode, which is the first of a three-part mini series about research into the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the causative agent of COVID-19. In this three-part series, we will discuss recent publications from QBI scientists that look into the basic biology of SARS-CoV-2, how we move from basic research to translational research, and the future implications this could have on clinical research. The paper we're gonna focus on today was recently published in Nature and is titled A SARS-CoV-2 human protein-protein interaction map reveals drug targets and potential drug repurposing. In this article, we've identified 332 human proteins that interact with 26 of the 29 SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins. 66 of these proteins can be targeted by existing drugs and chemical compounds. And excitingly, we've identified two classes of drugs that demonstrate antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-2 in human cell models. Helping me describe the details of this article, is my colleague, Michael McGregor.
2: Hi, I'm Michael McGregor. I'm a research associate in the Krogan lab.
1: And joining us in this discussion and making sure we stay on point will be our non scientist expert humans, Megan
3: and Alexa. Hi, I'm Megan. I'm an admin at UCSF.
0: And I'm Alexa. I work at QBI as a media and events coordinator.
1: All right, thanks, guys. Let's get started. So I wanna go through the research article and try to lead us through a discussion of what we did, how we did it, and importantly, why we did it. But first, let's go into a little bit of background about viruses and SARS-CoV-2. Viruses uh, are what we would consider obligate intracellular parasites. Uh, Basically, this just means they don't replicate outside of their host. So viruses that are, for instance, stuck on a solid surface, like a door handle or your kitchen counter, Um, Even though they might still be viable, meaning they can infect you and replicate inside of you once they do get inside, they can't replicate on that surface. So they, um, by themselves, they can't just make more of themselves. Whereas something like a bacteria could continue to replicate outside of your body.
0: How is this type of life cycle or replication cycle different from a bacteria?
1: Whereas a bacteria is a complete living organism, meaning its whole genome or the DNA instructions that tell it how to make more of itself and how to be alive um, encode for everything that bacteria would need. So all of the pieces of it that are necessary for life, a virus has a minimal genome. So it has only a subset of all of the pieces that it needs and it has to be inside of its host to steal those pieces in order to make more of itself. So for instance, us as humans, our cells all have a complete set of instructions. Our DNA, our genome is complete to the point where if a cell wanted to divide, it has all of the instructions necessary to make another
3: one of itself. A virus doesn't have that. A virus can't do that by itself. Got it. So we still need other stuff. Like we eat because we need different amino acids and stuff. So is that different than what viruses need? Right. So And that's why there's some, I
1: guess, uh, or maybe there was some controversy about the definition of life, right? We do still need nutrients and basic building blocks, like you said, amino acids and fat and all of those types of things. Um, But the instructions for us are complete. So how to take those nutrients and transform them into the things that we need are all complete within our genome, whereas a virus doesn't just need nutrients. It actually needs fully intact pieces like proteins, so fully intact protein machines. in order to make more of itself um so the virus for instance relies on human genes in order to make more of itself so it's requiring
3: human instructions basically to make more virus okay so it's not just taking building blocks from human cells it's taking the tools
2: too yeah i guess another way to think about it is that like our bodies and the cells of our bodies have all the structural components it needs to like execute our own metabolism, but a virus doesn't really have any of that at all by itself. It's relatively inert. Um, and it needs all those structures and components that Robin just listed in order to like, basically needs to commandeer the metabolism of our living cells in order to replicate itself. A virus by itself doesn't have a metabolism of its own, so to speak.
3: Yeah. I really like that. Um... The inert the virus can sit on a doorknob, and you said it's viable, but it's not really alive on a doorknob because like Michael said, it's inert.
1: right. Think of it almost as if it's like um waiting <laughs> like it's uh kind of in a stasis, so to speak. Um, and this is why also uh, you'll hear reports about how things like sunlight, or even just the air or heat will kill the virus, so to speak. It's basically reducing its viability time on that surface. So sunlight, heat, air, they're all basically changing that particle as it sits on the surface and making it to the point where if it were to get inside your body, it actually can't replicate anymore.
3: What do you call one little Bit of virus because it's not a cell.
2: A virion. So
1: one little virus is a virion. A virion.
2: Okay. (laughs) A little virion all by its lonesome. (laughs) But it is definitely tricky when you're talking about viruses. It kind of forces you to like, if I like, what does it mean for something to be alive? Um, But I think, you know, it's possible at some point in the future, people might decide to revise the definition of life to include viruses. Um, I mean, I certainly would be open to that interpretation. It's just that, I guess, technically speaking, like, In order to be alive, it needs to be able to grow and reproduce on its own. And a virus cannot do that. It needs a living host.
0: So um,
1: kind of to what you guys are getting at and what we're trying to come around is that because viruses are these kind of minimal units that basically just have enough of their own genetic code to get inside something Deal its pieces, and then make more of themselves. Part of the way that we can try to disrupt the virus from replicating and making us sick or an animal sick or a plant sick is to find out what those pieces that they're taking from their host are and try to stop the virus from being able to take those pieces. So in most of these situations, there's molecules called proteins. Um, So proteins are kind of like the machines inside our cell. They're the active molecules in our cell. They uh, build structures. They are the structures. They carry things back and forth. They do a lot inside of the cell. And the viruses are very clever in that they take those active machines inside of our cells and they use them to do the things the virus wants. And so part of what we do um, in the Krogan lab and at QBI is to try to study how the virus is doing that. What pieces of machinery is the virus stealing? And is there a way for us to stop that from happening?
0: And how do you do that? So in the paper that I mentioned at the beginning
1: of the episode, We use a very specialized technique in proteomics, which is called affinity purification mass spectrometry or APMS. And basically we use a bait protein to try and capture prey proteins inside of the cell. So you can think of this like you would fishing. You have a bait and it's on a hook and you're trying to catch things. Um, As we do something similar in molecular biology, where we put a hook onto one of the proteins that we're interested in, and then we try to pull it out and identify what's stuck to it by mass spectrometry. In this case, our bait is a virus protein and our preys are the human proteins that we want to see interacting with the virus protein. In SARS-CoV-2, there are 29 virus proteins. um, And in our paper, we managed to perform these kind of sophisticated APMS experiments for 26 of those proteins. Um, and Michael, so you've done a lot of affinity purification mass spec experiments. Maybe do you want to kind of explain the technical details of what this method encompasses?
2: The goal with this experiment or with an experiment rather, really is to kind of simulate what's happening in the real world, but to do it in a way that's safe and allows you to get the proteins that Robin's describing in sufficient qualities that we can actually like get data run it on a mass spectrometer and see what's there. And to do that, um, we take a cell that's a best approximation of the types of cells that these viruses actually infect. Um, And depending on the types of cells you choose can affect the level of difficulty of that experiment. And it's, you're always making a compromise between what's possible and what's most biologically relevant in order to get the answer that you're looking for. Um, But basically what you try to do is you take that relevant cell or as relevant a cell as you can get your hands on Um, and you overexpress those viral proteins that uh, Robin already mentioned. Um, um, In this case, we're basically taking each virus protein and we're using various tools that we have up our sleeves to overexpress those proteins one by one individually within the cell. Um, With the idea in mind that once we do, the individual virus protein should be sticking uh, to those human proteins that it needs in order to commandeer the the cellular metabolism to make more of itself. And so once that's happened, um, we let that go on for maybe a day or two to let that process carry out. And then we harvest those cells, we lyse them, we basically cause them to blow up to release the proteins that are inside. And then what we do is we want to isolate the proteins that are sticking to that virion or that, sorry, that viral protein. And we do that using literally uh, a little bead, basically something that's heavy that sticks to a tag, a specialized tag that we have appended to the end of that viral protein. And we literally pull it down with gravity, you know, and hopefully we pull all those human proteins down with it. We enrich those human proteins, we digest them, we break them apart and we throw them on a mass spectrometer to try and identify them and see what's there. It's kind of like just sort of reverse engineering, like how the virus works and how our body works. uh, so we can begin to hunt for clues as to like what the virus is really doing and how it's making more of itself at the level of individual proteins. Um, and so when you look at that per- paper that Robin alluded to, um, you'll see a gigantic network, a map, where we've identified what we think are promising candidates for human proteins that it needs to replicate itself.
0: Out of curiosity, have you guys used this process for other viruses as well, or...? Is this a new approach for SARS-CoV-2? This is an
1: approach that our lab has used for a number of viruses and not just viruses, but also bacteria and other pathogens as well. Um, so it's not a new technique, it's um, a new, an application to a new problem, essentially.
2: And it's definitely a technique that we're always trying to improve upon um, you know, as we hunt
1: so SARS-CoV-2 is an enveloped virus, meaning it has a lipid membrane that it steals from its host. So in our cells, we have lipid bilayers or membranes. And basically, the virus, when it's budding out of our cells, it steals that lipid bilayer. Um, so the outer portion of the virus is actually the like fats that make up our lipid bilayers from our cells. And then on the very outside, kind of like poked um, on the outside surface of the lipid membrane, are um, viral proteins. Um, so the virus makes a few different proteins um, that uh, kind of decorate the outside of the virion. Uh, one is called spike, and it actually gives the coronavirus its kind of um, distinct-looking shape. Uh, and so, like if you look in the news, they'll have like pictures where. It's kind of this globular thing um, coming off of kind of like a round particle.
3: Yeah, they look like those little suction cup balls that you, kids play with, throw out the window.
2: Every virus looks a little bit different. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the spike protein. So that's one of the proteins that a virus makes. And then on the inside of that little membrane compartment are. Other virus proteins that package the virus's RNA genome. So the this particular virus is one long strand of RNA that's packaged with various other viral proteins to help it get inside the little particle and do its job when it gets out of the little viral particle.
0: From what I've seen, it looks like a telephone cord, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like if you twist it up a lot. Um so, um, and then it's it's a positive strand RNA. So that means that once it pops itself into the cell, it's ready to go. So it's ready to just be immediately turned into a series
0: of proteins. And not all viruses are like that? Yeah,
1: so not all viruses have that type of life cycle. So um, certain viruses, Uh, They have a genome that needs to be reverse transcribed, so turned into something else. Some viruses need to have their genome inserted into uh, their host's DNA in order to replicate. Some viruses are just DNA instead of RNA, and so they have a different life cycle as well.
3: How does this shape protein, the the SARS-CoV-2, And that's the same, SARS-CoV-2 is another name for COVID-19, right? Are they different? So SARS-CoV-2 is
1: the name of the virus. Um, And then COVID-19 is the condition. So it's the...
2: I guess one way to think about it is that like COVID-19 is the disease and SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes it.
1: Oh, okay. Like HIV versus AIDS. Okay. All right. So HIV is the virus, but AIDS would be the disease that you have.
3: So how with that shape with the spikes, um, how does it get into a cell? Is it just like literally taking that spike and poking through?
2: I think in most cases, well, one way to think about it, um, well, I mean, each virus is different, but most viruses, it's kind of like almost, you can think of it as it working like a lock and key mechanism where a virus is, Found a way to interact with a specific protein in a, on a cell, usually a surface protein on that outer membrane, the outer wall of the cell. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, um, it's the ACE receptor, and by inter physically interacting with that protein, it kind of allows the the virus to become on, like enveloped by the cell.
1: It tricks the cell, basically.
2: Yeah, it tricks the cell into basically kind of eating the virion.
1: Yeah. So your cells naturally communicate, right? Your your cells naturally share nutrients. They share information. So they have mechanisms where they pull things from the outside in and the virus tricks your cell into thinking it's something it wants. So it basically pretends it's something else and the cell uses its natural mechanisms to pull it in.
3: Okay, so it's not breaking in, it's tricking it into letting it in.
2: Yeah, exactly. And there are usually a variety of proteins that are actually necessary for executing that process of the virion being enveloped in. But usually there's just one or two critical proteins that the virus needs to interact with to trick the cell into initiating that process.
0: So this might not matter, but how long is it until the cell realizes it's been hijacked? Unvoluntarily.
2: (laughs) The cell might never realize.
0: Yeah, like it's different every
1: cell and not every cell is gonna know. So some cell, a, a lot of your cells or all of your cells have the ability to sense an intruder and most of them will mount a response. Viruses have evolved to limit those responses, to stop them so that the cell can't alert the body's defenses, so that the cell doesn't try to kill itself before the virus can escape, and so that the cell doesn't try to uh, turn on its own defenses that it has inside of itself in order to kill the virus before it can replicate. So even though your cells do have those natural defenses, viruses that make us sick, viruses that infect us, have evolved ways to get around them.
0: pretty amazing.
2: Viruses are the original genetic engineers, so to speak. they they know way more about how our bodies work than we do.
3: Yeah, they're better than we are. <laughs> so it sounds like one virion could get into a cell on its own. But if you just were exposed, like you as a person were exposed to just one virion, it's not likely that you get sick.
1: Right. And it's different for every virus. Um, some viruses need a very minimal amount of particles. Some of them are highly contagious um, and don't require very many particles. Um, but yes, there there is a certain amount, typically, of infectious particles that you think, okay, you need to have inhaled or in some way uh, put a certain amount of particles inside of your body for a productive infection to mount, um, usually because of just the way that some viruses, when they were made, weren't as good as other viruses. Some of your cells may be mounted better protections. So there's a little bit of variability in the virus and in the person that's infected.
2: And if there's anything that we've learned from this pandemic is that, I mean, that variability can be huge. And it's one of the reasons why SARS-CoV-2 has given rise to a pandemic precisely because of how contagious it is. And there's a lot of people who became infected without even realizing it.
3: Okay. So yeah, Michael, um, when you were talking about the, the mechanisms and the, the methods that you guys used in this paper, you said you were using human cells and trying to, you know, get this as accurate as possible. What kind of human cells are you using?
2: Um, Well, in the case of the paper, um, the data that that came from was actually uh, what I refer to as HEK293 T T cells, or in other words, human embryonic kidney cells. Um, And um, you've heard other people in our lab, probably certainly Nevin Krogan, our boss, um, refer to it as sort of our workhorse cell line, um, precisely because they're easy to grow um, and they're relatively easy to manipulate. So we can very Rapidly generate and produce these viral proteins um, and uh, to see what human proteins are interacting with. Um, and then, usually, what happens is as we then take the next logical step and move to more biologically relevant cell types like lung cell types or cells of the immune system, um, it, you, the difficulty of the experiment um, is really contingent on the model that you choose, that cell type that you choose. And so Right now in the lab, we are doing follow up to the data, to the experiments that were published in that paper and uh, more uh, uh, biologically relevant cell types to and making comparisons between the two just so we can see potentially what differences might might be there.
3: And you mentioned breaking this rather than testing just the virus as a whole in these cells, you're breaking it down to the individual virus proteins. Um so what? Are, so the different viral proteins are attacking different things in the cell? And so each of the viral proteins is
1: interacting with a different piece of machinery inside of the cell to do different things. So each virus protein kind of has um, specific tasks that it's doing. And we're trying to figure out what, what each of those tasks are by studying them one at a time.
2: But you're... You're absolutely correct, Megan, to point that out because what we're doing experimentally is not exactly the same as what's happening biologically when when these vir- virions, these individual vir- virions, infect a, a human cell. And it is possible that there are things uh, that we might be missing. Uh, when we express each of these viral proteins individually, uh, it's very likely that they interact with a lot of the human proteins that they normally would. But it's possible that these different viral proteins need to work in conjunction with each other in order to form the complexes they need to commandeer the the metabolism of the cell, and that's why um, when we do these types of APMS experiments, it's very much a starting point um, that we use to launch, you know, future follow-up experiments where we do actually take the virus itself, uh, infect human cells, and see if it's behaving the way that we predict.
3: Cool. That sounds <laughs> such a lame cool, but no, it's actually really cool. So Michael explained pretty well the experiments that you guys have done, and looking at how the virus and the viral proteins attack and use the human cell. What do you do with the information now?
0: Traditionally, we would do
1: these kind of functional studies or a mechanistic study where we would look at maybe why the virus is using that particular host machinery. Um, And we've done this for a lot of other viruses. The urgency and kind of acute need um, for finding Druggable targets took our group in a different direction for this particular paper. So in this case, instead of trying to focus on just one interaction and detailing the mechanism of that interaction, we actually went broad um, and try to identify which of the 332 proteins that were identified could um, could be drugged by um, any sort of um, existing drugs and potentially prevent the virus from replicating inside our cells. So um, through collaboration with some really great groups at UCSF, um, mainly from the Shoka Shulke and Shoket lab, we tried to identify which of the proteins has known drugs that could target them. Um, and so they identified um, 66 of the proteins, that have some sort of FDA-approved drug or preclinical drug or compound um, that's already available um, or made it through a couple different phases of clinical trials. So um, we know it's safe for humans to consume. Um, And this ended up resulting in a total of 69 drugs um, that were identified targeting those 66 proteins. And so um, we decided to test those drugs Uh, at two different facilities, um, one in New York at Mount Sinai and one at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. Um, And so uh, using this collaboration, basically they have the ability to do SARS-CoV-2 infections inside cell models and then test those drugs to see um, which of these will either make the virus replicate worse, or even some, in some cases, potentially make the virus replicate faster. And so the, I guess, exciting news um, from these studies is that uh, they were able to identify two classes of drugs that ended up being fairly potent inhibitors of virus replication inside cells. Um, And so it is important to note that these are cell models, which um, do not necessarily replicate the same thing that happens inside of the human body. But this is kind of a first step to translating our human network or our human protein-protein interaction network um, into the kind of clinical uh, translational features where we could say, okay, Um, Here's now some drug target that a clinician could go and then theoretically set up clinical trials for.
0: So is the idea of looking into already existing drugs or drugs that have gone through clinical trials a way to find a solution quicker? Exactly. So
1: the reason that we want to focus on FDA approved drugs or drugs that have made it through safety trials um, for clinical trials is that the idea would be they don't have to re-go through some of the same safety trials. So we already know that they're safe for people and now we can just start testing their efficacy and safety in in response to SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19. And there's some kind of controversial examples, for instance, um, hydroxychloroquine, um, where it works really well in cells, but due to the side effects that it can cause, can have these kind of complicating factors inside the human body. And so kind of the adverse effects of um, having the virus or being infected with the virus are kind of amplified
3: um, uh, by the adverse effects to taking hydroxychloroquine. Um, why did you guys decide to focus on the human side rather than the virus side? Kind of along those lines, um, Virus proteins
1: can mutate for one. And so designing an inhibitor against a viral protein can sometimes only work up until the virus mutates away from it. Um, and two, uh, you have to design a new molecule essentially from nothing that would target that virus protein, which is actually very difficult. So, in order to design an inhibitor against a viral protein you have to know a lot about that viral protein. So there's a lot of things that go into designing a drug um, against a protein. So we're, by targeting the human proteins, trying to, I was gonna say, skip those steps. (laughs) Someone has already done the hard work of designing a molecule against the human protein and they've put in years and years and I know countless hours and time and lots and lots of scientists who have designed these drugs and now we're kind of just saying like thank you for all of your hard work maybe what you're you know you're targeting a human protein for maybe cancer purposes or alzheimer's or some you know some sort of um, heart disease but maybe we could use that same molecule to stop the virus from infecting the cell yeah like i don't know michael do you want to add anything? yeah
2: and uh, like uh another way to summarize that is that like the the trick with any condition or at least The trick with any infectious disease is to uh, kill the pathogen without killing the host and by looking for uh, drug targets um, that have been um, already gone through clinical trials for other disease states a lot of that hard work has already been done and while it is possible that uh, COVID-19 patients might respond to these drugs in ways that are anticipated it gives us a really good head start um, the kind of head start we need that's been created by the sense of urgency that the pandemic has Has created, Um, so a lot of that heavy lifting has already been done, and um, yeah, it gives us a really good head start to kind of jump into clinical trials to see how these drugs that already exist behave in the context of uh, uh, infection by SARS-CoV-2. Yeah,
3: that makes a lot of sense. It's not just a numbers game of how many human proteins there are to look at versus virus proteins. It's all the background work that's already been done on understanding the human cells, Mm -hmm.
2: and that's really the trick when you're designing drugs that target host proteins rather than virus proteins, because like we mentioned before, like the purpose of the virus is to commandeer the metabolism of the cell. And you want to design a drug that doesn't do that even worse. You you want to design a drug that can interfere with the virus's ability to do that without it having significant delir- deleterious effects on on the cell's metabolism itself. Um, and, and that's why when you look at those drugs that are on those commercials and they play that comedy music while they list all the side effects, it's because no drug is perfect. Um, it's always going to have some unanticipated consequences. But like when you're designing any drug, it's a question of managing the risk versus the gains of treating the condition. And um, yeah, with drugs that already exist on the market, um, yeah, it just makes the whole process much faster.
3: So when you think
1: about the amount of time it normally takes to design a drug and to go from you know start to finish, this pandemic has just it's an emerging you know virus it we just learned about it you know november december so it's not like we've had 10 years to design molecules against viral proteins so we're we're doing i i think scientists everywhere are trying to do you know a repurposing of drugs which is kind of in the title of this paper um and other uh, scientists from around the world have done this for Other types of antivirals, like remdesivir, um, which you guys have maybe heard in the news, is an antiviral for different type of virus. Um, So uh, there are, you know, scientists from around the world are kind of pushing at every different angle that we can think of in the hopes that one of us finds something that can treat this this virus and COVID-19, the disease. Um,
3: So everyone's pushing at every possible angle. So the paper identified those two classes of drugs that might help. Are those drugs going to be more like treatments for people who are infected, or will they be able to prevent infection? So We don't know right now. The optimistic person (laughs) would would say,
1: hopefully, this could be taken as soon as you get sick so that you don't get more sick. There are some notable uh, treatments for viruses that you can take um, prophylactically, so before you get exposed. Um, Something like PrEP um, for HIV is a type of prophylactic, so that you would take it to prevent yourself from getting infected. Um, More likely than not, that's not going to be what we find, just because um, having enough of the prophylactic to have everybody on it would would probably not be super cost effective, but ideally, what you would do is have a treatment that could be taken early in the infection so that before you develop severe disease, you could stop it in its tracks and it won't and it won't cause kind of some of the devastating effects that um, SARS-CoV2 can create
0: So Robin, you mentioned that. That you had identified these two classes that inhibit the replication, but that it doesn't represent um, what would happen in the body. How long would it take to test if these drugs uh, work in people? That's a really good
1: question. Um, It probably doesn't have a very satisfying answer, uh, and certainly not a satisfying answer by me, a basic researcher who has never once in her life done a single bit of clinical research. Um, but typically this would take a really long time, um, because the pandemic is so acute and because people really need these treatments, there is a big push to get, um, uh, as much, uh, to get the clinical trials going faster. And so it's really a matter of, um, who has the drug, um, that we think is going to be able to treat the SARS cov 2 um, infection or um, prevent SARS-CoV-2 replication, um, and whether or not they can generate um, enough of it to do clinical trials, and if they have enough government support or um, capital to do those clinical trials, and um, how fast they can get going. Um, So there's a lot of parts that are really important, um, but not as directly related to. Uh, The science um, that are a little bit more administrative parts that also feed into um, how fast this type of thing can get done.
2: Yeah. And not just in terms of the trial itself, but assuming everything went perfectly, of which there's no guarantee, and you have something that's a promising candidate for something that actually can be used to treat people, then you have to mass produce it and distribute it globally. Because if you don't use it on a global scale, then Uh, none of it will make a difference you'll still have the virus continuing to spread through the population and only a relatively small percentage of the world population has been infected so there's a lot of things that have to work just right to get a treatment in short order so it's very much of a moonshot um, but definitely one that needs to be taken but we're doing these two things simultaneously there's the sense of urgency to try and find what drugs might work quickly while also doing the same sorts of long-term research and like methodical lines of investigation that we normally do, because, you know, we want to find potential treatments that can, you know, alleviate the severity of the disease in our population right now, but we also need to get to the bottom of how this virus really works because it's something that might be a part of our way of life or, you know, it might be our new normal, you know, I mean, in the years to come, we might no longer just have a flu season. It'll be the flu and, and SARS-CoV-2 season, you know, and, and, and dealing with those things in conjunction. So it's like, there's the short game and then there's the long game and both of these things are happening simultaneously.
1: I think what's really remarkable and Michael, you can vouch for me also, is that this is something that would normally take years to do <laughs> that we're doing in, in months. And those years are basically being collapsed into months by just a hundred scientists working on the same problem. (laughs) And so you see that kind of happening all over the world is that all of us in the science community are basically trying to work towards one problem and trying to reduce what would take years to do into as short a period of time as we possibly can in order to combat this kind of very unique virus that is you know different from pretty much any other pathogen that we've come across as as humans like a lot of pathogens we come across do kill at a higher percent but are not don't hide in the population so well so they don't spread as far or you know so this is kind of a unique challenge that scientists are trying to meet in the moment.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's really humbling to see just how quickly work can get done when you have so many talented scientists focusing their attention um, on a singular problem. But uh, it's really amazing to see. For me also, it's kind of like a double-edged sword where you can see like how quickly progress can be made when everyone focuses their attention on one problem. But it also comes at the expense is that like, people are focusing the attention away from the things that they normally would have had their attention on. So sometimes it can also come at the expense of other biological questions that need to be answered for the for the purpose of addressing, you know, issues with human health. You know, how do you balance the need to focus attention on the pandemic with other needs and also, you know, not drive yourself crazy with the workload. <laughs> you know, the pragmatic side of me. But also what that ultimately means is that you know given the fact that an individual scientist can only focus on so many things at a time it it really uh reminds us of the importance of uh inviting as many talented young minds into the scientific community as we possibly can and make the scientific community as big and robust as it possibly can because the more part- people participate in the scientific process the more problems we can focus on simultaneously and that's why you know Doing things like this podcast and educational outreach and trying to get as many kids involved as we can, you know, it allows us to do this work that much more efficiently in the long term.
1: Okay, cool.
2: <laughs> We're all just so darn professional.
1: So darn professional.
3: The cat just chimed in. I was like, <laughs> I was pretty sure he was going to meow while I was talking.
1: Thank you for joining us today in the first of our three part series on the SARS CoV 2 coronavirus. We hope you join us next time in the second episode where we talk about how the SARS-CoV-2 virus rewires cellular signaling networks and how we can use this information to identify drugs that can be used to treat infection. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone who is doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, in keeping up social distancing, and in wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard, so thank you so much for doing what you can do to help. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our roles as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But we also understand that as humans, we will sometimes fall short of our goals. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or just in general, please reach out to us at biologistsbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, and we will do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. We want to thank both UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. And I would like to thank Alexa and Megan, who are our guests and friends and all around awesome human beings. And thank you especially to Alexa Roport and Michael McGregor, who are also our sound engineers and sound producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music.